you have a Bible with you tonight, open it with me again to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. We're going to hear again verses 18 through 20, the end of Micah's prophecy. And we're continuing on in our study of what God does with our sin. And as we look into this passage tonight, uh, we'll see some actions that we've already given consideration to. Uh, in verse 18, uh, we see that God has pardoned our iniquity. Uh, he has forgiven us our sins. Uh, the second half of verse 19, we're told that he cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then last Wednesday night, we looked at verse 18, where uh, Micah said that God passes over our transgression. Tonight, we're going to look at the beginning of verse 19, and we're going to look at the action that God takes as he tramples our sin underfoot. He treads our iniquities underfoot. So if you have your Bibles open, let me read these verses, and uh, then we'll dig into them a little bit more. Hear God's word tonight, Micah chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, and here's our focus tonight. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And may the Lord bless tonight the reading and the teaching of his word. So it's the middle portion there, verse 19, where we see God treading our iniquities underfoot. Just a a simple paraphrase of that. Uh, he tramples our sin into the dust. He stomps upon our sin. And this image that is conveyed there in, in this verse, in that phrase, uh, is an absolutely awesome picture. Uh, it's built upon um, battles in Old Testament context and culture. Uh, a conquering king or a conquering general in that day, uh, when the battle had been won and victory had been declared, would place his foot upon the neck of his enemy. And it was a clear sign, uh, a clear picture to all that uh, they had been overthrown, that they had been dealt with uh, triumphantly. And here in the prophecy of Micah, the Lord takes that imagery and he applies it to the action that he takes with our sin. Uh, what's interesting is we've looked uh, on Wednesday nights for several weeks now at the action God takes in relation to our sin through the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've, we talked first and foremost about how he has placed it upon his son. That is the chief action that God takes and everything flows out of that. Uh, we talked about how he has forgiven us of our sins. We see that mentioned here in Micah as well. Uh, we, we've seen several different things, uh, but this one tonight, him treading our sins under his, under his foot, stomping our sin into the dust, it's really quite amazing to me 
how often this imagery comes up throughout Scripture. We really don't think of it being you know, that pervasive. Certainly the atonement motifs are there. Certainly the idea of forgiveness is there, cleansing us of our sins. Uh, we, we see that quite often. Uh, but this idea of him stomping our sin uh, is, is really from beginning to end. And, and it's something that, that I think we need to give some consideration to tonight because of the impact that it can have upon us in our spiritual walk. So before we kind of dig in uh, to what it means that God has trampled our sin, let me just kind of walk with you through Scripture and give you some passages that convey this imagery, that give us this picture of God placing his foot on the neck of our sin. Uh, it starts really in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, the very first mention of the gospel, the promise uh, that God will judge sin and Satan there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between uh, our offspring and uh, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, uh, the very first mention that we have of a Savior, there's this imagery of sin and Satan being laid low into the dust, uh, of a fatal blow being exercised against it. And of course, uh, that is a fatal act when you place your foot upon the neck of something and stomp it uh, into the ground. Uh, it continues from there and, and goes throughout the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, is they are conquering the land as they are uh, driving out the inhabitants. In Joshua 10, 24, they bring uh, kings to Joshua. And Joshua summons all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And of course, in the study of Joshua, in the person of Joshua, uh, we have a foreshadowing, a picturing of the greater Joshua who is to come, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, the Psalms, in several Psalms, uh, pick up this imagery. Uh, in Psalm 8, uh, a messianic psalm, a psalm that gives a, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. In Psalm 8, verse 6, uh, the Lord there said, you will put all things under his feet. In Psalm 18, verses 37 through 42, it's a psalm of David as he speaks about overtaking his enemies as king. He says, I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. I think sometimes we forget that verses like this are in the Bible. Uh, this is David giving a picture of victory that 
uh, the Lord wrought through him. And of course, it's a, a picture of a greater victory that a greater David will bring to his people as, as well. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, this is a psalm of David, but it's also the psalm that the Lord Jesus Christ uses in his earthly ministry to speak to the Pharisees uh, of, of the greater David and what David meant in this psalm when he said, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What a picture. What a, what a, I mean, just what an overwhelming concept that your enemies will become your footstool. You will place your feet upon them. They will be under you. This is all just in the book of Psalms. Uh, it's carried over then into the New Testament as well in several passages. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, as Paul is extolling the glories of Christ, uh, he, he uh, reminds the Ephesian believers that because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is praying for them and giving thanks for them. And he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which they, he has called them, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this stage, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet." And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul understands that it's important for us as believers to have this understanding and this image of Jesus and all things, our sin included, being placed under his feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, this is... Uh, probably the, the most condensed teaching that we have on the doctrine of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 deals with it from beginning to end. And as Paul writes there in the middle of that chapter, he says, when the end comes, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So again, in the New Testament, this understanding that, that Christ has placed all things under his feet, that he is, he is exercising this divine authority uh, even over our enemies, sin and death. And then the last passage that I'll just throw out for your uh, notes tonight, Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 20. Paul is near to ending this great theological treatise that he's given us in the book of Romans, and he closes it out in this fashion. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's the way to end a letter. I mean, my goodness. And do you hear what Paul said? Listen to this again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan 
under your feet. The God of peace is going to crush you. And he says as well that our feet will then be employed in this action also. There's, there's this idea of what Christ has done and what God has done with our sin through Christ and the gospel. We share in that as well. And that's glorious tonight. The, the whole um, approach to this study where we're looking at what God does with our sin is to help us understand that our sin is no longer a barrier uh, in our relationship with God. Uh, that, that God has removed our sin, and with that, the guilt, the shame, all that is associated with that. And so now we can relate to Him. And in that same action, what He has removed, He has also replaced with glorious victory. That we share in the triumph of what Christ has done in defeating our enemies. And so tonight as we look at this particular action, that he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He has stomped out our sin, if you will. I just want to give you three simple thoughts. Three simple thoughts captured in this picture of Jesus placing his foot upon the neck of our sin. The first, number one, he has defeated our sin. He has defeated our sin. Christ, through the gospel, has conquered sin and Satan. He has fulfilled the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15. He has crushed the head of the serpent. He has stomped him out. He has victoriously triumphed over sin and done so on our behalf. Not just sin in general, but our sin. Uh, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul there says, Having forgiven us all our trespasses, this he has done by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what God has done with our sin. He has defeated it at the cross. And in that defeat, Christ has stood victoriously over it. He has defeated our sin. This is captured in the words of the hymn that we've used as the title of this series, uh, Oh, the Bliss, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, Spafford wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. But listen, listen to what he said again. My sin. My sin not in part but the whole. My sin. When we rightly understand the gospel, we understand that Christ didn't die in a general fashion for sin. But he died for my sin. He died in my place. He died as my substitute. And what that means is that Christ has defeated my sin. The sin that so easily besets us. The sin that we, we struggle with. It is under the foot of Christ tonight. He has trampled it. He is treading upon it through the gospel. So he has defeated our sin. Secondly, 
He has delivered us from our sin. He has delivered us from our sin. So these things are, are building on each other here. But as he defeated our sin, he has broken the bonds of that sin in our life. And as such, we now no longer stand before God as sinners. Through the gospel, we no longer stand before God in our sin or shaped by our sin. Rather, now through the gospel and through the victory that Christ has won there, through uh, his defeat of Satan and sin, we can now stand before God as saints. This is why Paul, when he begins so many of his New Testament letters, he addresses them to the saints that are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Philippi. The word saints there, it's a word that literally means holy ones. Hagioi, holy ones. That's how God sees us. Um, saints is not a specific or special class of believers that is canonized by the church, such as the Catholic church would practice uh, in providing sainthood for uh, specific individuals who meet specific criteria. Uh, that's not the biblical understanding of what it means to be a saint. A saint is one who has placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in that, uh, we have our sin defeated and we have been delivered from that sin along with its shame, along with all that uh, it brings upon us. And now we stand before God, not as uh, dirty ones, not as defiled ones, but as holy ones. Christ has delivered us from our sin. That picture of a conquering warrior with his foot upon the neck of his enemy all who were under the reign of that enemy have now been delivered. They've been freed. And such is what Christ does for us in our spiritual life in relation to sin. He delivers us from the bondage that sin had us uh, held in. So he defeats our sin, he delivers our sin, and then thirdly, he has dominion over our sin. He has dominion over our sin. That picture of standing over with a foot upon uh, the neck is a picture of complete authority. Complete authority. Um, if you feel so inclined, uh, you, you can look it up for yourself, or maybe you're just... Um, comfortable enough to take my word on it tonight, but if you'll look at many of those verses that, that I shared with you at the beginning, those passages that kind of give us this picture of Christ and the Lord putting all things under his feet and um, um, exercising authority, uh, trampling out our sin, all of those passages that we looked at, if you'll look at those in a study Bible or maybe even in the Bible that you have tonight, uh, a lot of those verses will have cross-references listed to them. These are the little bitty letters that you really can't see, you know, you're squinting and trying to, what, what letter is that? Uh, and it gives you some other verses that you can go look at. But what you'll find is that many of those cross-references to those verses that speak of uh, all things being placed under his feet, uh, they'll take you uh, to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Great Commission where Jesus begins by telling his disciples 
before he instructs them to go and make disciples among all nations, before he ascends back to the Father, he starts by saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. He rules and reigns over all. And because he has defeated our sin and delivered us from it, he now exercises dominion over it. And because we are now his, we get to share in that dominion. He's a new, new ruler in our life. We, we now serve a new master, if you will. And this is what Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 6. We could really look at the entire chapter where Paul is talking about how we now relate to sin differently because of the gospel and what Christ has done there. But in Romans 6, verse 14, and this is another verse that you'll find cross-referenced or reference given to in many of the passages that deal with this picture of all things being placed under his feet. But in this particular passage, Paul says, starting in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So one of the questions I want to be sure that, that I'm clear on, or one of the things I want to be clear on in, in this study is we hear God taking all of this decisive action with our sin. He, he uh, has placed it upon his son. He's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's passed over it. Now, he's cast it uh, out into the depths of the sea. He doesn't remember it anymore. Um, these are all glorious truths, but does that mean we can just continue on in sin and know that God's going to keep doing these things? Well, no, this is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 6. This is what he's coming to. Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Paul says when we understand what God has done with our sin through the gospel... When we understand that he now exercises dominion over all things in heaven and on earth, that he now has all authority, and because of our union with him, by faith we are united with Christ, we now share in that authority, we now share in that dominion. This is why Paul at the end of Romans will pick up this language that the God of all peace will crush Satan soon under your feet. We're sharing in that victory. Uh, thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I've used this illustration with you before, so I hope you'll bear with me for just a, a moment. Um, but when we were, uh, when, when the Olympics came to Atlanta, 1996, uh, we, we had the opportunity somehow to go to the gymnastics, women's gymnastics finals. And I don't know how we wind up getting to go to that event. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to go to. I just wanted to go see a baseball game. I, I didn't care about women's gymnastics, you know. But that's like the cream. That's like the top thing in Summer Olympics, right? And so we went, and uh, you know, we were at the Georgia Domes where they had the event, and we were in there with seventy thousand other people. And man, it was it was just, I mean, a nail biter. It came down to that last event. The United States going up against Russia, vying for the gold. And the last event for the U.S. was the vault. That's that one where they got to run and hit the trampoline and they push off the apparatus there and they do all the flips and they try to land. And it came down to the last U.S. gymnast. 
She was a redhead from Texas. Her name was Carrie Strug. Some of you may remember the story. So she runs down on that first attempt. She hits that trampoline. She vaults up in the air, does the flips, comes down, and she, she semi-sticks the landing, but in doing so, she hurts her ankle. And it's like noticeably. She's like limping, and man, she's in bad shape, and it's, you know, man. And she's got one more attempt. So she gets back there. She kind of uh, just gets herself together. She takes off. She runs. She flips. She does it, and she sticks the landing. And once she's done that, she just collapses, and that's it, and she's done. And then so we're all watching. We're all waiting, and we're trying to figure out, was it enough? Was it enough? And what seemed like an eternity passed, and finally the scores pop up, and by just a few tenths of a point, the United States captured the gold, and the place just erupts, and it goes crazy. And we walk out of the Georgia Dome that afternoon. The event happened early in the day. They didn't show it. They don't air it till prime time, so we, we knew ahead of time what was going on. But we walk out, and the whole, everybody that was in there was walking out, and we're just chanting, USA, USA. Everybody's going, we won, we won, we won. We won, we won. Everybody's like, what happened? And we just like, we won, we won. I didn't win a darn thing. I sat in my seat and cheered. I didn't win anything. The one who won it was that little gymnast from Texas, Carrie Strug, and that last attempt that she had and sticking that landing on a broken ankle somehow. That's what won it. But that day I was sharing in that victory. I was rejoicing in that. I had a part in that. I was saying I, I won I, I, by my union as a citizen of the United States. I was rejoicing in that victory. It was mine as well. That's a picture of the gospel, albeit imperfect. We haven't done anything, nothing at all. Christ has done it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He has done it all, but we share in that with him. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ has placed his foot upon the neck of our sin. And he has defeated it and delivered us from it. And he has dominion over it. And he calls us to share in that victory and dominion with him. And that's what Paul is getting to. He says, because we share in Christ this victory, this union with him, he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. Because you are not under law, but under grace. In Genesis 4, we read the account of the brothers Cain and Abel. Cain slew his brother Abel. You're familiar with that story. And as the, the Lord comes to Cain in dealing with him, he says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to rule over you. We wonder what's so wrong in our world today and in the lives of so many people, sin is ruling over them. And the only thing that can break that bondage and 
bring deliverance and, and bring about a change in dominion is the gospel of Jesus Christ and a God who places sin under his foot and tramples it out. That's what Christ has done. And he calls us to share in that authority, in that dominion, and to realize that we don't have to succumb to the power of sin in our life any longer. For we now have a greater power, a greater authority, a gospel one. So as we think about this action of God and what he has done with our sin and trampling it out, treading out our iniquities underfoot, I want to leave you with just one application. And it's simply... What Paul prays for in Ephesians 1, that we would know the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times we feel hopeless in regards to our sin. I just can't get this. I can't get past this. I can't get over this. And we feel defiled and dirty and shamed and broken and a mess. And we think there's just no way that God can love me or wants me or will use me here, cares about me. And tonight as we consider this action, this image that God puts his foot upon the neck of our sin, let that give you hope. Let it give you a picture of God that perhaps you've not considered before. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on the book of Joshua, in that chapter, Joshua 10, where the kings of the land are brought to Joshua and the chiefs of Israel, and they place their foot upon the necks of those Canaanite kings. Davis draws out of that the image that we need to have and take away of our God and our King. He writes, listen carefully, the popular image of Jesus that many have is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. He continues, such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by sin. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. He says, it is only as we know the warrior of Israel the God of the Bible who fights for us, that we have the hope of triumphing in much of this life. So when you consider what God's done with your sin and that he has placed it under his foot, let it lead you to great hope, to know that our God is in fact a warrior God. Psalm 24 Probably, this is going out on a limb here, so just bear with me. It's probably my most favorite psalm. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For he's founded upon the seas. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart has not lifted up his soul to that which is false, not sworn deceitfully. It's this question of who can come and stand before God. In the first half of that psalm, the psalmist just leaves us in utter despair. We, we realize who we are and who God is. And it's like, how in the world can we come before him? And then it turns on a dime. Lift up your heads, O gates. Open up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The psalmist asked. Here's his answer. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. Our God is a warrior God. And he has taken sin and kicked it, stomped it, trounced it into the dust. So therefore, let not sin reign in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that you have tread our iniquities underfoot. Father, we thank you that you're a God who conquered sin, our sin, that you have defeated our enemy. You have crushed the head of Satan. And so, Father, we pray that we would know that victory and live in that victory. And, Father, when we're struggling against sin, God, when the fight is intense, Lord, help us to remember that you are the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And Father, you fight for us. Father, I pray for these who are before me tonight, Lord, that their faith in you would be firm, their joy in you would be full, they would be filled with your Spirit and yielded to your ways. And Father, if it's your will that we should gather this next Lord's Day, God, let us come eager and longing to gaze upon your glory, that our lives would never be the same. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.